here today amongst God's family and in my own family. It's great to have my aunt and my cousins and my parents here, and of course my husband. Thank you. So as you can see from that video, there's more than just Italians living in Italy. You're probably wondering where <laughs> all those pictures were taken in Italy. Um, you see there are millions of internationals now living in Italy, people from Africa, South America, Asia, all over the world. They're coming to Italy to find a better way of life. Okay, and you know, you might also be wondering, why would a missionary need to go to Italy? I mean, it's a Catholic nation, right? Don't they believe in God? However, the statistics show us that only 12% of Italians actually attend church at least once a month. Another 12% claim to be atheists, and a lot of people are leaning towards becoming Islamic. So, you know, there's a desperate need there. And in fact, sadly to report, only less than 1% of Italians are evangelical. So you really can't claim that as a Christian nation. Instead, Italy is covered in a spiritual darkness of secular humanism and false religions. You know, Joe and I pastored the International Church of Rome, and most of those pictures were people from our church, Nigerians, from Togo, from the Philippines. Great group of people that God has loved. And during the time we were there, the church was blessed and answered to prayer. We were able to move from our small rented room to a six-floor building and we had so much room to expand we praise God for that so the very first thing we wanted to do was start a ministry for children we were unable to do that in the smaller building so we had children in our neighborhood and we also had children in the refugee center just down the street we wanted to reach them for Christ so our very first event was a vacation Bible school I'm glad to hear that you do that here uh, we were able to reach children of many different backgrounds. In fact, we had two girls, two sisters, from Muslim uh, background. They were living at the refugee camp, excuse me. And they came into the church, and they were very apprehensive about coming to church and singing songs about Jesus. They were Muslim. But you know, the very first day, Nora got in there. We started the song service, and she folded her arms and said, I'm not singing. And we said, okay, that's all right. We're going to sing. So uh, we did, and by the end of the day, not only was Nora singing the songs, but she was up in the front doing all the hand motions to show all the other children how to do it. The love of God just embraced her and warmed her up, and she was exposed to, I believe, the message of Jesus for the very first time in a positive way. Okay? So we were able to pray with these children, and just, uh, it was just an awesome, awesome event. When we went to the local refugee camp, to hand out invitations. We came across a woman named Elizabeth, and she was from Nigeria. She was a Christian, but she had been married to a very nominal Muslim man in Nigeria, and he died. And so when he died, his devout Muslim brother came to her and ordered her to marry him. Well, she did not want to have anything to do with being married to a practicing Muslim. So instead, she closed up her house, she took her three daughters, and they went for the scariest boat ride I could ever imagine. They were huddled together on a rubber raft. You may have seen some pictures of those that on the rubber raft with about 100 other people, and they were floated across the Mediterranean to reach Italy. They were rescued by the Italian Coast Guard and brought to the refugee camp that was very close to our church. So when she got that invitation to come to an international church, a Christian church, she was delighted. She came, she loved it, she became part of our family. And her daughters, Mercy and Faith, came to Vacation Bible School. 
They came to Children's Church faithfully, and we had the pleasure to water baptize them in the Mediterranean. God took a very difficult situation for Elizabeth. I mean, the death of her husband, having to leave home, the risk she took taking her family across the sea, and instead he gave her beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Praise God. Uh, we arrived here back home in February, and we are tr- looking to seek approvals from the Assemblies of God to start a new work in southern Italy. Two places we're targeting is Naples and Sicily. We would like to start international English-speaking Pentecostal churches. Presently, there's none in Naples or in Sicily. And Naples, I don't know if you know, but is the most densely populated city in all of Europe. It has a very large international community. And Sicily receives 170,000 refugees a year, mostly from North Africa and the Middle East. A lot of them do speak English. And so we want to be there to be able to provide for them spiritual help. We have missionaries there and and, um, organizations that are helping them process paperwork and meet the physical needs. But Joe and I feel led to meet their spiritual needs, to provide an English-speaking Pentecostal church for them. Um, another refugee I wanted to mention to you is Opec Tu. Very different name for me to pronounce. But it's Opec Tu, and he's from Ghana. And he was like the saddest man I'd ever seen. He told us his story. He had nobody, no family, not in Ghana and not in Italy. And so we said, you know, Opec Tu, please come to church. Come and be part of our family. Come be part of the international family here. And so he did. Week after week, he came and once a month, we always had a meal t- together. He stayed for the meal. And, you know, slowly, God was doing a work in his life. You could see a glimmer of hope back in his eyes. You could see a smile across his face. God was doing a new work. And our prayer is that the Lord will allow us to be able to reach out to other destitute refugees and um, show them that the Lord is their refuge. He's the father to the fatherless. He's the ever-present help in a time of need. Uh, We ask that you keep us in your daily prayers. We face a lot of obstacles trying to set up new churches in these areas. Um, The Roman Catholic Church does not want us there, and even the Italian government makes it very difficult. In fact, in 2016, when we went to go over, we were denied visas because we're evangelicals. And so the Lord worked through that. We we made it through, and um, we believe we'll do it again. We also need approvals from the Assemblies of God missions here in the U.S., and the Assemblies of God in Italy to be able to start this new church plant. There is much work to be done to brighten the darkness in Italy with the light of the gospel. Uh, We have a table set up in the back. You might have noticed we have prayer cards, uh, newsletters, and other information about our ministry. If you'd like to receive our email by, uh, no, like to receive our newsletter by email, you can sign up and we'd love to do that for you. So uh, with this, I'll give the microphone to my husband. Thank you. morning, church. Is this working? I don't need to raise it. I'm not used to this high-tech uh, microphones. Uh, in Rome, if we had a handheld that worked, we were very happy. So, it's wonderful, wonderful to be here this morning to meet your wonderful pastor and his lovely wife, Teresa, who's celebrating her 25th birthday today. 
I, I was going to say 29, but she said 25, so I was a little bit off. But uh, no, it's great to, to meet you guys, and it's great to be here. Um, thank you, Pastor, for giving us this opportunity. We so appreciate. We love to share our uh, heart and our burden for uh, the Italian people, especially the international refugees. Um, normally, what's protocol for me is I kind of tease my wife. Mary grew up uh, in Long Island, and um, I, I love to tease her about her accent. And I won't do that today because many of you talk like her. So uh, I'm going to be nice today, and I'm going to skip that part. <laughs> I'm not usually real mean, but I just like to point out the differences. I grew up in the Hudson Valley area, so we, we don't have an accent up there. No, we don't have an accent. I love how the Lord orchestrates things. It's just amazing to me. I've been a Christian now for 36 years, and I've never gotten over how God just takes charge and orchestrates things. I have a series of messages that are all about missions that I normally share when I go to churches. And early this week, the Lord put on my heart a different message, one I've never shared in a mission service. And I thought, this is kind of strange, Lord. You know, they're coming to hear a missionary, and you're giving me a different message. Well, I, I went with it. I figured I better be obedient. And when the first song of the song service was sung, I realized that it was definitely of the Lord, because that song and the whole song service basically could fit into my message. In fact, I don't even need to preach. I, we could just go home. You've heard everything you need to hear. But I want you to get your money's worth, so I'll stay and I'll finish the message. If you have your Bibles, which hopefully you do, I'd like you to open up to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 45 to 51. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Mark 6, 45 starts as, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much how you guide and direct us, Lord, and thank you for this scripture verse, Lord, this story. Thank you for all the hidden truths in it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, today that as, as I open my mouth, may your words come out, Father, and may you minister to your people here. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever read a scripture like 99 times and the hundredth time you read it, all of a sudden God illuminates something in there? That's what happened with me with this with scripture. I had read this many, many times, and then one day I was reading it, and these biblical truths just started popping out that I'd never really noticed. And they were very encouraging to me, and I thought, well, let me share this with the congregation. But um, before I get into that, I want to give you a little bit of background on this portion of Scripture, in case you're not really familiar with it. Um, 
if you look back to chapter 5, this, this occurred right after Jesus did a lot of really amazing miracles in front of his disciples. And uh, if you go back to chapter 5, it talks about how he fed uh, the 5,000 men, plus women and children, with a boy's lunch. You know, uh, just a couple fish and, and a few uh, dinner rolls, basically. Demonstrating his power over nature, Okay. Uh, then he healed uh, um, the woman with the issue of blood, if you remember that, and uh, demonstrated his power over, uh, over the, uh, infirmities, over the sick. At the same time, Jarius' daughter was raised to life, demonstrated his power over death. And, uh, and then he, um, he healed the demon-possessed man, which showed his power over the spiritual world, the demonic world. Uh, he, he freed him of his chains. Amazing miracles. And these happened one right after another. And um, you would think that after seeing, witnessing this, that the disciples' faith would have been so strong that they could have conquered the world. But it didn't necessarily happen that way. So I want to go over with you the, some of the things that God showed me about these six verses that we read, seven verses that we read. Um, and hopefully you'll walk away today feeling a little a little stronger in the Lord, a little more encouraged. First thing I noticed was verse 35, I'm sorry, 45. It said, Jesus made them get into the boat. I never saw that before. He made them get into the boat. And it doesn't really elaborate, but I can speculate as to why. Uh, After all of these events that have happened, I imagine the disciples were not anxious to be separated from the, the Lord. They wanted to stay with him. Sort of like when Peter was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He wanted to build a tent there and just stay up there, you know, with Jesus and and, uh, Moses and Elijah. But we can't stay on the mountaintop, can we? We like the mountaintops. Mountaintops are great. You can see real clearly from the mountaintop. But there's not a lot of growth that happens on the mountaintop. In, in, In the world, the most fertile land is in the valleys, okay? Uh, not, not much grows on top of a mountaintop. And so we need to uh, be in the valley sometimes so that we'll grow. And um, also, there's not a lot of people on top of a mountain, but there are tons of people in the valleys, and we need to be where the people are. So God will give us those mountaintop experiences, but he doesn't expect us to stay up there. He wants us to grow, and he wants us to get into the valleys and, and rub shoulders with the people that are down there and share with them the good news. So anyway, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. They didn't want to, but he made them. Another reason they may have not wanted to was because they were mostly fishermen. They were from that region. They'd been across the Sea of Galilee many times, and they know the weather and the signs of the weather. And they probably saw this storm coming. And they figured, you know, we really don't want to go, Jesus. And he was like, you need to go. But to their credit, they did. They got in, and they started rowing across the lake. But they did not want to go into that storm. Not many of us do want to go into a a storm, do we? We don't want to do that. We we would rather avoid the storm. But sometimes there's a purpose for a storm. In fact, when when it's directed by God, there's always a purpose, and it's always for our benefit. So they got in the boat, and they started rowing. At this point... I would feel safe to say that they were in the center of God's will. Wouldn't you agree? 
Jesus told them to go. They got in and they went in the direction he told them to go. They were doing exactly what God told them to do. And yet, they come across this storm that was threatening their lives. It was probably the worst trial of their lives up to that point. They were fighting the storm, and we're going to talk about how difficult it was to get through this storm. They were fighting for their lives, and yet God sent them there. Jesus sent them into this storm. And so I realized, the Lord revealed to me, that just because you're going through a storm in your life doesn't necessarily mean you're out of God's will. Just because you're in a trial doesn't mean you messed up. It means that God is trying to teach you something. God is trying to grow you. His perfect will for you, his highest priority for you and me, is that we're conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Okay? He not, does not want us to have a cushy life here. Because we won't grow. That's our human nature. Sometimes we need to go through trials and tribulations so that our faith will be strengthened, we'll call out on him, we'll depend on him more than if everything was just hunky-dory. So the disciples are in the middle of this lake, battling this storm, and they're in yet, they're in the middle of God's will for them at that point. So don't let the enemy um, condemn you or make you feel guilty if you're going through a trial because it's very possible that this is what the Lord has you going through. He wants you to grow. He wants you to, to um, learn from this. He wants you to be strengthened in your faith. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There's one mediator. There's one mediator. And we have to remember that, that Jesus always intercedes for us. And it says in verse 46 that when he sent the disciples out to sea, what did he do? He went up the mountain to pray. Why did he go up to the mountain to pray? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Jesus went up to intercede. He's always interceding for us. Jesus is always interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. When, especially when we're going into a trial, when we're going into a storm, he's there interceding for us. Now, this didn't really comfort the disciples much because they didn't see him, but he saw them. It says that in verse 48, that uh, I think it was 48, 46, that he went up to the mountainside to pray, and he kept his eyes on them. He was watching them, the scripture says. He was watching them. They didn't realize that. They didn't realize that Jesus had his eyes on them. And sometimes when we're in the middle of a storm, we don't realize that either. Where's God? Where's God when I need him? You know, I don't, I don't see him. Where is he? Well, you don't see him, but he sees you. He has his eyes on you. I heard one, someone once say, if, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. <laughs> Which I thought was cute. But, but God keeps his eye on you, even in the midst of the storm. Uh, sometimes when we're in a, a battle, when we're in a fight, when we're in a storm, all we could see is the raging waves and the wind and, and the effect it has on our lives. And of course, you know, I'm talking about spiritual battles. I'm not talking about physical storms. But when we go through storms of life, sometimes we lose track of where God is or we forget that he's got his eyes on us. And we forget that he's interceding for us. 
But in this case, the disciples, they did not know that Jesus had his eyes on them. But he did. And he was interceding for them. Now, one question I always have is the timing here. It says that they went out, they were in the middle of the lake during the evening. Now, the evening back in Jesus' day in the, by the Jews was around 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That was considered evening. And it says by evening they were in the middle of the lake. And we don't know exactly what time that was, but we know it was between 6 and 9 p.m. I asked my old um, Sunday school teacher who taught uh, theology at the Assemblies of God uh, Theological Seminary. How long would it take to row across that lake? I'm just curious, you know. And he said, well, depending on where they were and how experienced the oarsmen were, he'd say maybe two hours, you know, two, two to three hours. Well, these guys were experienced boatsmen. So I would say it wouldn't take them probably more than two hours, two, two, three hours, to row across the entire Sea of Galilee. So if we know that they were in the middle of the lake in the evening, that we know that sometime between 6 and 9 p.m., they were in the middle of that lake. Let's say it was 9 p.m. I, like, I'm, I was an accountant for 30 years, so I like to be conservative with my estimates. And um, I'm trying to estimate how long they were rowing. So if they were out there in the middle of the lake, it had to be between 6 and 9. Let's say it was just a few minutes before 9 when they hit the middle of the lake. And as experienced oarsmen, let's say they started rowing at 8 o'clock. Again, we don't know. They could have started at 4 or 5 o'clock. But we know that the earliest or the latest they would have started rowing was 8 o'clock. Right after that, the scripture says, by the fourth watch, Jesus went out to them. The Romans kept different times than the, the Jews did. The Romans divided the night into four watches. The first watch coincided with the Jews' evening, 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch went from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch went from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Jesus went out to them on the fourth watch. Again, we don't know what time that was. It could have been as late as 6 a.m. It could have been as early as 3 a.m., but it was probably in that time period. Let's, again, be conservative. Let's say it was 3 a.m., just after the fourth watch. If that's the case, that means the disciples started rowing at 8 p.m., and he came out to them at 3 a.m. If I'm doing my math right, that's seven hours. It could have been much longer. They could have left at 4 or 5 in the, in the afternoon, and he could have come out to them at 6 in the morning. It could have been over 12 hours. But at a minimum, they were rowing for seven hours through some of the worst uh, storms, choppy seas they've probably ever encountered. Seven hours, and they were uh, to do what normal people in a normal day would do in two hours. They were only halfway there. Seven hours. I cannot imagine the exhaustion, physically and mentally, they must have experienced rowing in that storm. I have been in a similar situation. I was on a canoe expedition in Missouri, and we hit a storm, and it took us 45 minutes to get to shore. And as soon as we got to shore, we collapsed on the beach, exhausted. They've been doing it for a minimum of seven hours. So my question is, 
Why did Jesus wait so long? Why did he wait seven hours to rescue them? Have you ever been in a storm, a trial, and you pray and you pray and you pray, and you're wondering, God, where are you? How come you haven't rescued me yet? Just think of the disciples. Just know this, though. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. Galatians 4, 4, uh, at the right time, Jesus sent, or God sent his son, Jesus. Just at the right time. Jesus didn't come too late. He didn't come too early. He came just at the right time. His timing is perfect. Doesn't usually coincide with our timing, but his timing is perfect. And he came out to those disciples just at the right time. So when you're in a trial and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you're wondering, God, where are you? Don't stop praying. Keep rowing and keep praying, because Jesus is coming. And just keep looking for him, because he's coming. So he comes out to them, and Scripture says that, and this is to me, I think, the saddest part of the story. He came up towards their boat, and they were terrified, and they screamed, it's a ghost. So that tells me they weren't even looking for Jesus at this point. They weren't, they weren't looking for him. They had forgotten the miracles, how he has authority over heaven and earth. They forgot what he could do. And instead, they think there's this ghost coming. Now, to their defense, uh, there were uh, superstitions back in Israel in this time that said demonic forces accompanied storms. And perhaps that was part of the reason they didn't want to get in the boat, especially without Jesus. They saw the storm coming. They thought, you know, there might be demonic spirits in there. But the sad thing to me is they didn't recognize Jesus when he came. And he had to... So if you were Jesus, I know what I would do if I was Jesus, and it wouldn't be the same thing. (laughs) If you're coming up to them, you walk out on the water to greet these people, and they start screaming in terror, Oh, no, it's, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. I think I'd be a little fed up with these people. It's like, what's wrong with you? Have you forgotten? You know, ah, forget it. My father used to do that. Ah, forget it. And then turn around and go back to shore. He didn't do that, did he? What did he do? Did he condemn them? He said, what's the matter with you idiots? Huh? He didn't say that. He said, take courage. It's me. Whoops. I talk with my hands. Sometimes having a, a wireless mic is good, but in this case, it's not. He says... Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. He he didn't condemn them. You know, a lot of times when we're in the midst of a storm in our lives, sometimes we we blow it, we fail. And we do things or we say things or even think things that we'll later regret. But know this, God is willing to forgive. He wants to see you succeed. He's going to forgive you. He's not going to condemn you. He's not a God that's waiting in heaven for you to make a mistake so he can cut you down. He's a loving, forgiving father. He's faithful to us. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. So don't forget that. Don't let the enemy use that condemnation to make you feel guilty because perhaps you, didn't, you weren't full of faith during a difficult time in life. God's forgiven you. And he's forgiven me many, many times for that same reason. So, Jesus comes out, calms his disciples, 
gets into the boat and the Bible says immediately they made it to the other side, the winds and the waves died down and everybody was safe. Not one disciple was lost, not one drowned. He saved them all. He rescued them from the storm. And I'm here to tell you, that's the Lord we serve. We serve a God that will rescue you from your storm. Just call out to him, keep praying, keep rowing, keep your eyes open, because he's coming. Don't let the world, the enemy, uh, your guilt um, pull you down. But remember this story. Remember this storm that the disciples went through, that he rescued them. And they learned some good lessons that day. They learned that, that um, Jesus always has his eyes on us, that he's always interceding for us. That sometimes he sends us into these storms, but usually, always, for a reason and for our, our good purpose. That he'll come out to us and he will rescue us in his good timing. And he will bring us safely to our destination. We will make it, church. We will make it. We will get through these storms. If any of you are in a storm... Uh, if you're not in a storm right now, take note, because I tell people there are three phases to a Christian's life. You're either in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're going into a storm. So if you're not in one yet, just brace yourself. You'll, you will be. It happens to all of us. It's not because we're bad people. It's just we need to become more like Jesus. And this is how we do it, by going through these storms and crying out to him, and he will carry us through. He will rescue us. He's very faithful. And he cares about you. And I'm going to just close with that. I, I didn't want to keep you long. I wanted to encourage you. Um, just perhaps, Pastor, we want to have some time at the altar. We just want to know if, if anyone here needs prayer. I know this is a praying church. We would love to pray with you. If you're going through a trial, we want you to come down and pray. Pastor, I'm going to turn it over to you.